So have you ever failed at something? Ever, ever failed at anything? There's a story about a coach that once said this, if you failed so bad that they want to run you out of town, be sure to get out in front of the crowd so you can make it look like you are leading a parade. That's a good word. I'm in a, a season of life where I'm praying that I have not failed. Uh, this coming week, I will move two of my children into college dorms for the first time. One of my other kids is full gear and a career and might be moving out of our house in the next year. My youngest has a couple of years of high school left. He is starting to look a little, a little more like me. He is starting to act a little more like me, which is very dangerous for him. But, but I'm in the season of life where there are so many things happening strategically around my kids. And, and although it's fun and exciting, truthfully, it's extremely stressful <laughs> because of, of these pictures that we have in our culture today. Here's, here's one of those pictures. A few years ago, the, the Barna Group put out a, a report, and they were projecting that 80% of kids that grow up in the church would eventually disengage, walk away from the church before the age of 29. So what does that have to do with me connecting my prayers to making sure I haven't failed? Well, another report a few years ago by a professor of sociology at the University of Notre Dame, Dr. Christian Smith, in his report on youth and religion in the United States, he made this statement. Without question, the most important pastor a child will ever have in their life is a parent. So parents, how you doing? at pastoring your kids. I, I loved Colin's prayer earlier. He, he used the word moxie. Love it. Moxie. See, as parents in this day and age, we, we need the gospel. We need some moxie. We need some strength. We need some help. But, but don't discourage yourselves. I mean, the question is real. Parents, grandparents even, how are you doing at helping your children see the God who created them and the only God who can save them. How are you doing it pastoring and shepherding your kids? It, it's daunting. But, but let me just remind you that he is worthy of that time. It's, it's not this guilt trip, oh, I'm doing a terrible job. Guess what? We get to help our kids see the worth of the one true God. It's a privilege. Don't, don't abandon the privilege this week to just try to help them get good grades or just try to help them get a good job or just try to help them get out on their own. Don't, don't abandon the worth of God that you can invest in your kids. He is worthy. Benita Reisner is a parent. She's a wife and author, lives in Raleigh, North Carolina. She brings our attention to the main issue that my kids and, and anybody else who's ever grown up in church really has to deal with. She says it this way. Ask yourself if Jesus is your treasure or if you are only borrowing the faith of those around you. Are you borrowing, leasing with an option to buy? Or is your faith your faith? Is it who you are in the morning? 
Is Jesus your treasure? Jesus was, was cool. He was popular. Man, people were, were following him. He was, he was riding a high. He was, he was really out in front of a pretty good parade. There's about 5,000 people following after him. 5,000 people just enamored with his teaching, enamored with, with his miracles. They, they just wanted to be around Jesus. And then suddenly, everything changed. It was like they all went off to college at the same time, just like immediately. There, there was 5,000 people following Jesus, and then there were 11. Like in the matter of 70 sentences, 5,000 to 11, give or take. I mean, that would be like there being 5,000 people in this service at the beginning of the sermon and only 11 people left at the end of the sermon. Now, don't get any ideas. I mean, you, you might want to bail in a few minutes, but hang in there with me, all right? Jesus had a mega church, and then he had barely an ad hoc church committee. What happened? How in the world did this amazing success, it seems, that Jesus had with thousands of people coming after him, how did it shift to looking like he was an utter failure? Well, let's find out. Listen to John chapter 6, beginning with verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So Jesus, he, he grew up in church. Jesus was, was now teaching in church. And what was he teaching? Well, he's teaching some, some interesting things. Jesus was saying that he came from heaven. And the people were like, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph and Mary's kid? He says he came from heaven? Jesus was saying that he was the bread of life. And the people were thinking, well, isn't he a carpenter? I'm not tracking here. Jesus was teaching that a person can't be saved unless God draws them. And the people were saying, what about being a good person? What about our our good works and and our good deeds? And then then Jesus really kicked it up a notch. He said, if you're going to follow after me, Jesus said, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And now the people are like, gosh, some kind of vampire cannibal? What in the world? Can't follow this guy. So why was Jesus using this this strong language? Why was he using these strange words? Well, he was not saying anything accidentally. He was using vivid words and vivid imagery to make sure that the people understood that they were not deceived, that they were not confused about what it meant to follow after him, or we might say what it means to be a Christian. Following after Jesus is not just joining the church, it's not just being baptized, it's not just tithing, it's not just serving on an ad hoc church committee, it's not just teaching a Sunday school class, it's not just being a pastor or an elder or a deacon. Now, the, the picture that we have of following Jesus is one of complete devotion and total surrender, a yielding of your life to him. On another day, Jesus said this, Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
The cross, by definition, was an instrument of, of death. And so Jesus is saying, if you're going to come and follow after me, you're going to have to die. Most specifically, you're going to have to die to self. Well, what does that mean? Die to self. How do we, how do we die to ourselves? I've shared this definition of what it means to be a, a Christian with you before. It's, it's, it's clear. It's difficult, but it's clear. It goes like this. A Christian is not a person who believes in his head the teachings of the Bible. Satan believes in his head the teachings of the Bible. No, a Christian is a person who has died with Christ, whose stiff neck has been broken, whose brazen forehead has been shattered, whose stony heart has been crushed, whose pride has been slain, and whose life is now mastered by Jesus Christ. Mastered by Jesus Christ. This past week, we had the funeral service for our friend, Miss Kathy Hughes, and and one of the things that I, I read was a poem, and I think it was the very last line of the poem, or somewhere in the poem, it, it said, it's, a, it's viewing from a, a believer's standpoint now being in eternity, it said, I'm now at the master's side. And you know, when I was reading that Tuesday night, I thought, you know, we don't like the word master in our culture. We don't, we don't even like the word boss in our culture. But the beauty of what it means to spend eternity next to the master's side because you've been mastered by his grace and mastered by his mercy, mastered by his love, mastered by his sacrifice for you in such a way that you begin to say, I'm not here to get my way. I'm not here to pursue my desires or what I think I want. I exist because Jesus gave his life for me. Now, hearing that our brazen forehead has to be shattered in order to be a Christian, not really easy on the ears, right? But, but it's really not supposed to be. Jesus is standing in church, and he's preaching and teaching some, some pretty difficult things. See, generally speaking, in our culture today, most people, they would say, hey, when I go to church, I, you know, I, want, I want a good, positive, upbeat message, you know? I, I, want, to, I want to go to church, I want to feel good about God, and I want to feel good about myself. Paul gave a warning to Timothy. It went like this, 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time will come, Timothy, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Some desire culturally relevant talks and, and socially relevant manifestos more than they desire the truth of God's Word. Some desire charismatic sermons about living a good moral life or being a good American more than they desire the truth of God's Word. But what if the most culturally relevant, socially relevant, good, moral, positive message that we could possibly have was difficult, was hard? What if the hard stuff in church was actually better for us than the comfortable stuff? You see, the great thing about the Bible is it's not a dead book. It's not outdated. It's, it's living and active. It speaks 
to the time that has already gone by. It speaks to the time that's right now, and it speaks to the time that is to come. And it speaks with authority, and it speaks with clarity, and it speaks with power. You may not always hear what you want to hear when you read the Bible, when you hear the Bible preach. You may not always hear what you want to hear, but your soul will hear what it is most thirsty for and what it is most hungry for, even if you don't know it. Your soul will hear words of truth, words of life, words of love, words of joy, words of peace, words of hope. Hope. So, sometimes those words will be difficult. It'll be hope, but it'll be hard to hear what happens to get to the hope. And so, how are you doing with the Bible? How are you doing with with how God describes himself, his character, his ways in the pages of his book, the Bible? How are you doing at the time is that the Bible tells you your opinion is wrong? How are you doing at the time when the Bible tells you that you actually need to change and be different? How did the people respond when they heard Jesus teaching these hard things? Listen to verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? This is in direct response to Jesus saying, yeah, I eat my flesh and drink my blood. So we'll give them a little bit here, okay? But they say, hey, this is, this is difficult. This, this is hard. Who, who can hear this? Here's the thing, though. The, the word for difficult here in the original language, it really means offensive. See, they understood what Jesus said. They, they weren't completely freaked out about eating flesh and drinking his blood. They knew that that was a picture of allegiance. It was a picture of you really do have to die to self if you're going to follow me. They understood what he meant. They just didn't like it. And they didn't want to listen to it. They didn't want to hear it. They were offended that Jesus would demand that kind of allegiance. They were offended that that Jesus was not giving them any points for being a good Baptist and a good person and doing good deeds and good works. If I were to update it for us for modern times, we might have been sitting there listening to Jesus going, what's he doing? How dare Jesus demand that I commit my family to him? How dare he, he demand that I commit my house and my, and my car and my boat and my motorcycle to him? How dare Jesus command that I commit my education to him? That I commit my job to him? That I commit my weekends to him? That I commit what I do on vacation to him? that I commit how I act on Friday night and Saturday in the football stands to him? How dare Jesus demand that I commit my retirement to him? I'm done being commanded. I'm retired. How dare Jesus demand that I commit my money to him? It's mine. I earned it. I'll do what I want to with it. See, that's how we would have been thinking. If we were sitting there listening to Jesus, these are difficult words. Sometimes when we read the Bible and hear the Bible, it will be difficult. Sometimes it's difficult because in that moment, we we don't quite understand. We're not really sure exactly what it means in the moment. Sometimes we we think it's difficult because we understand (laughs) and we know what it's saying 
and we realize it's attacking our opinions and it's telling us that we're wrong. And so that's difficult too. But how should we respond when we hear difficult things from the Bible? This is what Jesus said on another day, Luke 7, 23. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Happy and blessed and content and satisfied is the person that is not easily offended when they're reading the Bible. Happy and blessed and content and satisfied is the person that that when they're listening to a Sunday school lesson or a Bible study or a sermon, they're not easily offended when something is said that, that rubs them the wrong way, not because it's heresy, but because it's truth and it's uncomfortable. Happy and blessed and content is the person that keeps trusting Jesus, that keeps loving Jesus, that keeps following Jesus. Listen, when you don't understand, ask for help. When you're angry, ask for help. When you're confused, ask for help. When you're sad, when you're worried, when you're stressed, ask for help. But keep trusting Jesus. Keep resting in Jesus. And why should you do that? Why should you keep trusting in Jesus? Why should you keep loving Jesus? Why should you keep following Jesus? Christian, I I cannot make it any more simple than how the Bible describes it. You should keep trusting Jesus. You should keep following Jesus because he loved you and gave himself up for you. That's why. That's why. So when you're sitting at your first test in a couple of weeks and school is already feeling stressful, whether you're the student or the teacher, you keep trusting Jesus because he loved you and gave himself up for you. And when you're sitting in the doctor's office and you're waiting for the test results and you're not sure what's going on, you keep trusting Jesus. Why? Because he loved you and he gave himself up for you. Jesus left the the pleasures of heaven to come to earth in a smelly manger to to grow up in a carpenter shop to basically be silent for a couple of decades, three decades, and and then all of a sudden, he began to set out on this unbelievable mission to rescue you. And he did it with joy. The Bible says he endured the cross and all its shame, and he did it because of the joy that was set before him, the joy that was in him to honor God and to love you and rescue you. We keep trusting because he loved us and he gave himself up for us. But that's what we do. What do we not do? Listen to what happens next, verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What we don't do is grumble and whine and murmur and complain. I mean, we're going to have our moments. That's not what I'm saying, but but not as the habit of who we are. See, they weren't grumbling out loud. They were kind of grumbling in their mind, you know. They They were murmuring in their mind. They might have been murmuring under their breath a little bit to one another, but Jesus, he knew what was in their minds. He knew what they were murmuring because Jesus knows all things all the time. 
And Jesus, knowing they were offended, he, he took it all back. He was worried when he heard them grumbling and murmuring and complaining. He was, he was worried he didn't want them to be offended. He felt bad that he had offended them, so he, he took it all back. No. <laughs> he kind of doubled down. Yeah. Jesus wasn't easily worried about offending people. You know, Jesus was, was pretty consistent with saying offensive things. He would challenge people for worshiping religious traditions. He would challenge people for, for worshiping every cool new religious fad that was out there. He would challenge people who would make a really big deal out of things on social media or in a church business meeting or in emails or texts or phone calls. People that would make a really big deal out of something that is not important to the kingdom of God. No, Jesus was in the habit of calling people out. Jesus was in the habit of offending people. And the reality is he, he still is. He still calls us out. He still calls people out when they begin to put anything above him, anything that is not worthy of praise and glory. Jesus doesn't apologize. Rather, he asks them, so wait a minute. So y'all are struggling with this? Well, What's going to happen when you see me arrested, when you see me beaten, when you see me brutally executed, when you see me buried in a cave, when you see me risen from the dead, when you see me rising up into the sky? What are you going to do then? If you're struggling with this, you're really going to struggle with the stuff that's coming. They were, they were struggling. These things, they were, they were not making a connection with. They were not getting it. And why? Listen to what happens next, verse 63. Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. See, here's the thing. We can't crawl down into our own souls and give ourselves spiritual life and give ourselves eternal salvation. That's something only the Holy Spirit can do. And so the, the Holy Spirit puts spiritual life into our souls. And, and how does the Holy Spirit go about getting spiritual life into our souls? Well, what has God chosen to use to reach our souls? Well, God's choice is His Word, the Bible. Again, what does Jesus say? These words, my words, they're spirit and they're life. A person's soul is not quickened by logical presentations. A person's soul is not stirred and, and quickened by charismatic sermons. A person's soul is not quickened and stirred by traditional music or contemporary music. A person's soul is not quickened and stirred by a well-worded invitation. A person's soul is only stirred by the Holy Spirit. It's only by the Spirit that a person can believe. And the Spirit stirs by God's design through the Word, through the Bible. That's God's design. We can't change it. We can't add to it. We can't do anything about it. That's how He designed everything to work. The Spirit stirs, and we believe. But not everyone believes. Listen to what happened next. But there are some of you, Jesus said who do not believe. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. They wouldn't believe. All these thousands of people that were following after him, they loved the free bread. Boy, they loved the miracle where everybody got free food. But they hated God's truth. Generally speaking, how do we make decisions? I mean, how, how, do, we, how do we go about making big and small decisions in life? Well, generally speaking, we, we find out the information we need to know, right? We find out as, as much as we can and, and what's happening and what's going on, and, and then we make our decision based on the information that we've gotten. Salvation is a little bit different. We believe first, and then we step into everything. See, it's the opposite of how we do everything else. We don't step until we have everything almost figured out, until we've got everything lined up. But salvation is. The Spirit quickens our heart. We, we see the beauty of Jesus. We see that He loved us and gave Himself up for us. And we are compelled and constrained to pursue Him, to follow after Him. And then the rest of it comes. Many among Jesus did not believe And therefore, they didn't step into anything. And Jesus knew all this. Jesus knew who would believe. He knew who would not. He knew who would betray him. He knew who would follow him. He knew who would not follow him. And Jesus still knows. He still knows whose profession of faith is truly a possession of faith. See, there are people who who claim to be disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, but as soon as God's word gets hard, or as soon as the circumstances of life get hard, and let me say this, life has some hard circumstances, really hard circumstances. But this week, I read about two parents whose three daughters, two of the three, were diagnosed with this terrible disease. Their, their youngest has already died from it. I believe the other daughter will die from it. She died on a day after her sixth birthday. The, the oldest daughter has not been diagnosed with the disease yet, but I'm, I'm reading the story of this terrible pain and heartache, and all I heard from the mom and all I heard from the dead was, we know God is with us. We know the gospel is true. We, the thing that blew me away, they said we made a commitment to not miss church. They said we just didn't want anything to keep us away from the one place that would help us keep seeing the glory of God, that would would help us bind together with our salvation. So we just did everything we could not to miss. You know what we do when hard times comes? You know one of the first things we do is we quit coming to church. We, we do. It's one of the first things we do. When, when hard things come, we're like, I can't deal with it. I, I can't be there. Can I just tell you, please stay with us. Please stay with us. Please. The gospel is true. God is great. He is our shepherd. He doesn't fail. He doesn't forsake us. And you will feel like all of that's a lie. So stay with us. So we can help you see it's not... It's, it's why we do this. It's why the church exists. A.W. Pink says this, 
There are many that may wear the badges of disciples, but God will know from their actions and speech that they are not believers. Again, these aren't easy words to hear, but, but Jesus tends to lay all his cards out on the table, right? And, and in this moment, these folks are going to have to respond. Something's going to happen, and they're going to have to respond. So how do they respond? Listen to verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. A disciple is a learner, and, and they were done learning. <laughs> they didn't want to learn anymore. They were hitting the road. They were, they were heading out. They were great with Jesus, the miracle worker that gave them the wonder bread. They loved that. Good, positive, uplifting. Yeah, we like that. That was kind of fun. But they were not buying that Jesus was the bread of life. Listen, in, in recent months, some higher profile Christian leaders have, have publicly communicated that either they're struggling with Christianity or, or some of them have completely abandoned the Christian faith. They are kind of saying out loud, hey, I'm, I'm losing my faith. I came across something that I think is good and timely and it kind of captures at least one way we need to respond when we hear announcements like that. And this is it, Alex Jayak. Remember, we're not saved by pastors, denominations, or specific churches. We're saved by Jesus. The word of God is still true. The reality of Christ's resurrection still holds. Even if the person who brought us this message no longer believes it. It's God who saves us through Jesus, not the person who told us about Jesus. Listen, when we all stand before God, it will not be your denomination or the name of your church or the name of your pastor or the name of your favorite worship band or your parents' name, your grandparents' name, or any other name that will matter. The only thing will matter in that moment is this. Is Jesus your treasure or are you borrowing the faith of those around you? I pray that Jesus is your treasure. There were many people following after Jesus that called themselves disciples, but at best they were, they were temporary. They were not permanent. And many of them left when the words got tough, but they didn't all leave. Listen to what happens next, verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And bless precious Peter's heart. Speaking for the rest of them, he says this. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Don't you love this? Peter didn't always get everything right, but he got this right. Jesus, Jesus, where are we going to go? It, it almost has the vibe, we've, we've looked, we've looked. We, we looked for another Lord. We looked for another way to heaven. We looked at other philosophies. We looked at other religions. We looked at, at science. We sent that guy on TV some money. You know, we, we went to the Middle East and to, you know, a little village and got alone and tried to find ourselves one with nature. We deconstructed our spiritual life. And everything else that we've tried always came up short. 
But you, Jesus, you have words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Where else can we go? I love how John Piper describes Peter's words here. No one ever spoke like you. No one ever acted like you. No one was ever so strong and meek, so tough and tender, so authoritative and gentle, so profound and simple, so powerful and so willing to be killed, so just and so willing to be treated unjustly, so worthy of honor and so willing to be dishonored, so deserving of immediate obedience and so patient with people like us, so able to answer every question and so willing to remain silent under abuse, so capable of coming down from the cross and flaming judgment, and so committed not to use that power. That's our Savior. He loved us and gave himself up for us. Listen, the disciples did not understand everything. They didn't. They, they didn't understand why people went to hell. They didn't understand why children died. They didn't understand why disease happened. They didn't understand why war happened. But they kept following. Their life did not suddenly get peachy and fluffy, but they kept following. Their life was still difficult. They still had issues. But most importantly now, they had Jesus. They, they had Jesus. I shared earlier about Vanitha Reisner. I've shared some of her story in previous sermons. Her son Paul died when he was just two months old. Six years later, she was diagnosed with a condition that eventually will require her to have full-time care. She won't be able to do anything on her own. And not in an old age, but in a younger age. Six years after her diagnosis, her husband left her and the kids and later filed for divorce. I want to share a couple of things from Vanitha, and, and the first is for those of you who are struggling today. Those who are struggling in your faith, you're, you feel like maybe you're losing your faith. You're thinking maybe Jesus isn't listening, or, or maybe the gospel is just not real. The first thoughts from Vanitha are, are for you if that's where you are. She says this, Prosperity gospel proponents have told me that if I had prayed in faith, my body would have been healed, my son would have been spared, and my marriage would have been restored. It was all up to me. If I just had the faith, I would have had a better outcome. Their words have left me bruised and disillusioned, wondering what I was doing wrong. But listen to this. But that theology is not the gospel. God's response to our prayers is not dependent upon our worthiness, but rather rests on his great mercy because of Christ, who took our punishment. God is always for us. If you don't get any other sentence, get that. 
Because in the doctor's office, you'll say, God's not for me right now because that's not the report I wanted. And at the funeral home, you will say, God's not for me because this is not what I wanted. And when you get an F on your paper, you'll say, God's not for me because I studied really hard. And when you pour your life into your spouse or your kids and they reject you, you will say, God's not for me because this is not turning out the way that I thought it would. But friend, here's the deal. Because of Jesus Christ, because he has accepted our punishment, God is always for you. He's always for you. It's impossible for him not to be for you because of the cross. It's impossible. Here's the second thing. This is for those of you heading off to college this week. For the first time, second time, third time. It's for those heading back to high school or middle school. That's for those teachers heading back to any of those schools, elementary, middle school, high school, college. It's it's for the pros, it's for the single adults, it's for the married adults, it's for the middle adults, it's for the senior adults, it's for anybody and everybody. This is what Benita says. All I can do now is trust that he who made the lame walk and the blind see, who died on a cross so that I could spend eternity with him, All I can do now is trust that he's going to do the very best thing for me. And then she says this. It all comes down to trust. Will I trust my circumstances that constantly change? Or will I trust God who is unchanging? On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what you'll face later. I don't know if one day you'll hear me say, I'm struggling with the Christian faith. I don't know. But I do know this. All other ground is sinking sand. All of it. So may God give us the strength and the grace to stand firm on the rock of Jesus Christ. He loved you and gave himself up for you. And all God's people said, Amen.